In early Denver, newspapers were the media. At the end of the day, newspapermen gathered to socialize, play some poker, shoot some pool. They organized their own private club, the Denver Press Club. They had a clubhouse built, which still stands today and still functions as a social club and event center and celebrates the rich history of Denver's news reporters and newsmakers, which now includes electronic journalists and the fields of public relations and advertising. The Denver Press Club is the oldest continually operating press club in the country and sponsors and hosts a variety of entertaining and informative programs and events. This edition of the Denver Press Club is sponsored by the Denver Press Club and the Colorado chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists. Uh, Patty Calhoun, I want to thank you for joining us tonight for our, our program here at the Denver Press Club, sponsored by Colorado SBJ Pro Chapter. And you've been in Denver since the, the mid-70s. I want to ask you, um, came in, in 1977 to co-found Westward. Uh, what changes have you seen in the Denver media landscape since then? Uh, what changes haven't we seen? Uh, we prob Let's see, we have one fewer daily. We have many fewer magazines and other kinds of publications. You have a lot of reporters just plain gone. If you look at the total number of reporters, I think the number of TV stations have cut back, everyone's cut back. So it's a depressing media landscape compared to the sheer volume of stories coming out and reporters working. On the good side, you have so many other ways to get the news out because of the web. There was a, a, a period there when the, the Rocky, the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post were engaged in a very intense news and circulation battle. And it seemed they pushed each other to higher journalism levels of reporting. What was the effect when the Rocky folded? Well, a lot of people got away with very bad things because there simply are not enough reporters in town to cover all the beats. And on a completely selfish level, my Denver Post subscription went up about 252 times, was, isn't it? When the old days used to be able to get a paper for a penny. So. One of the other the effects of that as well has been uh, covering the legislature and the state capitol. There used to be a number of reports on two different floors in the state house, the press rooms, covering the, especially during the session but also in the off season. And now it's down to a handful of people. Where do people go to get their, their information news about state government in, in Colorado? Where do they go to get their information about their county government and their city government? I think I'm, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong on this. The Post used to have at least one person in every county covering as a beat the county governments and the municipalities within those counties. Now they have one person assigned to all six counties outside Denver. You know, that is just not enough to get the news. You can go to the local daily, are there many local dailies, local weeklies, um, you'll go to neighborhood groups, but it's just hard to get that news. At least there are still people covering the legislature. It, it, it appears in the last couple of years there's some new organizations have moved in to fill that void. And I'm thinking of Chalkbeat Colorado, Inside Energy, Rocky Mountain PBS iNews, and there are some other organizations out there. Uh, but the ones I mentioned, they have the credibility. And you see their bylines in the Post and other uh, publications and also uh, broadcast as well. 
How do you view that? Do you view them as competition? Well, yeah. Chalkbeat just took one of our great writers, Melanie Asmar. So yes, that's competition. You know, the more people reporting on the city, the better. So if that works, great. Um, I think it's still so problematic that model of nonprofits, especially those that say don't, aren't involved with Rocky Mountain PBS and have to scrap for every penny. That's tougher, but. We certainly need people to fill the void, and if that works, that's great. How do you and, and your staff select the stories you pursue, either on a weekly basis or long term? Do you do you look at what the Denver other Denver organizations are covering and say we there's they're they're not covering this or ignoring this? We'll go after that, or how do you make those newsroom decisions? Well, we're all chasing a lot of different beats. We realize we can't do everything, so there are going to be stories that are really interesting to us that we think we can do a better job on that are going uncovered. And there's some we won't do when, say, the Post is doing a good job. Uh, Denver Health is a great example. They've done a great job on that. We had some tipsters contacting us when they were pretty far along, and I said, you know, we're, if we do that, we're going to miss other stories. So. We're going to skip that for now. We're going to do others. Like Chris Walker, who's here, just did a great story on the homeless sweeps, did uh, CORA requests from the city, because there was so much going on that no one was reporting. They were reporting the sweeps, but they weren't reporting everything else that had gone into them. What are other kinds of stories that Westward has pursued that oh, you pot. felt you could do much you know, better? If it's about pot, we'll really? pursue it. Sure. <laughs> we were all about pot long before the Denver Post was. You know, in addition to everything you do with Westward, and you do it a lot, and it's terrific. Um, one of the weekly features, and people see you on Channel 12, is, is Colorado Inside Out on Friday evenings. Uh, how do you? What goes? What's the background of that? Because it seems like it's a very well organized half-hour discussion with the panelists. Well, that is a myth. But uh, so Colorado Public Television, Channel 12, started that 25 years ago. And Colorado Public Television was the upstart compared to Rocky Mountain PBS. And they asked me, I'm the, I'm the only original panelist left, Sue O'Brien, the late Sue O'Brien, who was so great. Al Knight was on it. Pierre Jimenez was on it. And Ken Hamblin was the host. And the <coughs> format has kind of evolved. We, um, Ken Hamblin left because he actually didn't let anyone else talk. And that's hard with that group, that no one else was talking. Uh, then Peter Boyles was the host. He left. And now Dominic, who works at Channel 12, is doing it, which is great because it makes it their show, not whatever radio or personality comes in to host it. But we don't know. If we actually pay attention to our email, we'll know the night before what we're going to talk about. But sometimes it's the next morning, and then the cast can rebel and change, change the topics. But there seems to be a very thoughtful dialogue uh, interchange between the four panelists. And Dominic's the traffic cop that keeps everything going so you don't run out of time. Well, it's good to know that's how it appears. Sometimes when we're in there, it doesn't seem that way. The only thing that's great is generally we take our turns, uh, kind of like kindergartners who have to raise their hands, which is good because you get some time to actually think about what you're going to say instead of spending all your time trying to argue. There are some national shows like that where they're talking over each other and just arguing about it. But I, I, I think Colorado Inside Out helps fill a void where there's been a diminished role in editorial pages with newspapers, and that program offers some very good commentary and opinions that helps cover that, I think. Well, one of the great things about Denver, readers, everyone who lives here, they are actively involved in their city. They want their city to be better. They would like to get more information about their city than I think they're able to get sometimes from outlets. They like talking about it. You'll be standing in line at a grocery store because of Channel 12, and people will come up to you because they think they've just had this conversation with you. They've been talking to you, say, at their aunt or uncle's 
um, backyard barbecue, and then all of a sudden they realize they know you're from Channel 12, but they want to be part of that Denver conversation. So that's what I love about Channel 12. It's pretty casual. I mean, you walk in, you sit down, there are no fancy fluffers to make you look better. It's just talking with a bunch of people you know. You mentioned at the outset about the reduced number of, of jobs, employment in journalism now, especially in print journalism. But I think in Colorado's a good example that the mid-sized dailies and the weeklies will have a sh longer shelf life. They're still viable financially. So there's still opportunities there. Um, if you were talking to a group of college students, journalism students, what would you tell them about the future of uh, how to get a job in journalism or the future of journalism? I would say don't give up, but be get expand your skills as much as you can learn as much as you can about different things you care about and be willing to go to a very small market. You might have more fun there anyway. But weeklies in smaller markets are doing much better than weeklies in major markets. Obviously dailies in smaller markets are doing better than dailies in big markets. So journalism is going to survive, but it's, it's definitely a changed animal. When you, when you say you would tell them to learn a variety of things, you're talking about um, government, politics, education, environment, news coverage, or technology, or everything? Well, you want to be a jack of all trades. You have to be able to go out and take your own photograph at the same time you're covering an event, because there may not be any photographer who's going to do that. You have to not be scared of the internet. You have to be able to hype your own stories on social media. You sometimes do your whole stories on social media. Well, this time of the year, we, we can't have a discussion about news media coverage without talking about Mr. Trump, and that's, that's a copy of the Boston Globe um, fake front page of a couple days ago. But, but, and you've talk about, you talk about Trump uh, occasionally on, on Colorado Inside Out, but what's your opinion about how the national media is covering him and, and the, uh, the other Republican candidates and the two Democratic candidates as well? You know, it was, um, first of all, it's just too much. We know it's too much because if you are watching the national news, you actually don't know that there's any news behind, beyond uh, the presidential election. You don't know that there is a world unless the world is commenting on the U.S. election. I was in New York a couple weeks ago and having a fight with some people at a dinner party, and they were all blaming the media for Donald Trump. And I said, but everything the media does is making fun of him pretty much, or talking about his stupid comments. But what, they're just, what they were saying, and I still haven't decided if they were right, is they made Trump possible just because the people who would vote for Trump aren't paying attention to the, what the media says about him because they hate the media. They're just paying attention to the fact that Trump is irritating the media, and they like that. What was your reaction to that, the Boston Globe? Well, I haven't seen the Boston Globe story the way they did it. You know, this is the spoof cover. Really interesting to go back and look at everything he said and extrapolate from that, what he would do on his first day in office. I would like to see the actual newspaper to see just how confused people are because spoofs are really hard to do, especially as they live on forever in the Internet. You don't know if it's April 1st when a joke runs. You don't get the joke context. But I love the fact that they went back and dug all this up. Yeah. The, uh, the Daily Show does a pretty good job covering Trump, but Jon Stewart must hate his timing and retiring from that show before Trump got oh, rolling. For late night TV, he is the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, there's no question. We, we want to open up to questions um, from the audience. Uh, we don't we'll make sure we have enough time for your questions. So who would like to lead off? Who has a question for Patty? Well, I have a question as long as we're on Trump. Um, as you know, he's treated the 
um, the journalists that have been covering his campaign um, with a lot of you know derision and, and humiliation and everything. And I'd like to hear your comments on that. Um, my sister works at Getty Images in New York, so you know, the, so the major photography outlet. She said they have never had the kinds of restrictions put on photographers that have been put on photographers covering Trump. So they're not people asking hard questions, they're just taking this photo. And it's the first time ever they've been stuck in a corral and even then they get shoved aside. So no, I mean, I think journalists have, although he gives us plenty to talk about, um, if he were elected president, we might not have the opportunity to talk about it very much since he wants to change libel laws, since obviously access is nothing he's excited about. Hi. Uh, journalists have a uh, very low opinion reputation in some opinion polls. Uh, what do you think are the causes of that and remedies? You know, ironically, it's something as simple as whoever they know who was once in a newspaper had their name spelled wrong. I mean, that's what people hate more than anything. They hate anything that's an error. They hate names that are spelled wrong. They hate things that seem mean, like going and talking to um, someone who's just died, someone whose loved one has just died. You know, I'm not sure there's any remedy other than doing our jobs better. It also seems people are, have a habit of blaming the messenger for the, the, the news, rather than being concerned about what the news is, it's right. who got it to, who delivered it to them as well. And people, I mean, I think we're still ahead of lawyers, aren't we? People like us more than lawyers. And I think other careers will go below lawyers soon, too. So I think maybe we're in the middle now. I think another aspect of one reason why maybe small town papers are, are still doing well uh, is that um, the reporters and editors and publisher meet the people they're writing about, they're reporting on. Uh, on Main Street, at the coffee shop, grocery store, theater, church, whatever. There's a more accountability there. Where maybe with national media and even a city the size of Denver, there is that disconnect between who's reporting the news and who the news consumers are. So both, that's true. So both the journalists are maybe more responsible or more careful. They're writing about their community. Does that mean they're pulling their punches? That's another question. Yeah. But it also means it's harder to hate the people you know well. So in a smaller town, maybe journalists are more respected. Yes. Um, have you ever had to fight for respect uh, because from writers from in our office? office? No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no uh, from other from other publications because you're not weekly. I, I just I'm, I'm part of other journalism groups, and I feel like sort of the, uh, the feeling about all weeklies are that they're kind of like lower. I don't really feel that way, but I just you know the world is changing so fast that if that's still happening. Um, I think that'll go away too. When we first started Westward, we were as a free paper, we were put on the level with the thrifty nickel, and with what else? You know, shoppers. I mean, p people could not imagine that you would give away a paper. And even though it had happened in other cities, like Boston had them, Chicago had them. I mean, where do you go to sell a newspaper in Denver? At the many newsstands? No. I mean, it, doing a free paper made sense, and it put us in a much better position when the web came because we already believed that information should be free and that you can make value for your advertisers with a free publication. So that'll change too, but I can't tell you how often people just said we were a throwaway shopper. They still say now we're a throwaway, but it's not a shopper. You're right, that was a stigma, but it's- Oh, absolutely, you've being all, free, you've and, now, yeah, yeah. and now, yeah. I mean, with the web, how can you not imagine well, being free? Newspaper economics changed, so that changed that perception yeah. too. Tell me if you might talk a little bit about your experience found in the West 
Am I your experience founding westward? Oh, I, I would try if I remembered much of it. You know, it just seemed at the time like a good thing to do rather than get a real job. I just graduated from college, and I loved um, the, free, the daily newspaper we worked on, which was independent. I went with two friends and started a newspaper on Long Beach Island, New Jersey, for no good reason except someone had a summer home there. You know, it was a four-block wide island, and we never saw the ocean, which gives you a good example of how, how much we worked. And I thought afterwards, I would much rather do this in Colorado, because I'd been out here skiing. So it seemed like Denver was the right place to do it. I went to the Colorado Press Association. I asked what kind of competition there was. No one seemed to know anything about magazines or weeklies, so we just decided to do it. Um, so it was a long time. It bumped along for a long time. Yes. Would you speak to the uh, economic well-being of the westward before and after the legalization of marijuana? Yes, happily. Um, you know, we used to be kept alive by sex ads, by voice, you know, voice personals, by classifieds. Remember when those things existed? I much prefer having pot pay for our journalism. Uh, there's no question that papers in that uh, the Colorado Independent in Colorado Springs, the Westward, it has been a big boon for us. And we actually discovered how well marijuana was doing in 2009 just because we happened to look in the back of our paper and said, wow, there are a lot of these ads for these things called dispensaries long, you know, three years before we voted for uh, 64. So we do get a lot of marijuana ads, and if they're paying for everything else, we're fine with it. We can no longer mail out of state, however. Yeah. So there are interesting things that way. You poke fun at your own paper because of Someone has of that. to. Well, yeah. But you've won a number of national awards for investigative reporting for your column writing, too. So you obviously emphasize quality journalism at Westward. Is this something, when you look, when you look to hire someone, you look for that in them, or you have newsroom talks over a beer or a coffee and talk about this is the level of, of operation we want to have? We want to win awards. We want award-winning levels of journalism. I mean, there's no question we want people to aim high. We really think hard about every cover story and every big feature and what people are putting time into and is it a good story and is it well reported and have we covered all the angles. Um, you know, Alan Prendergast is a, has won incredible numbers of national awards and just chooses to be at Westward because he can tell the stories he wants to tell about a city he's lived in his whole life and loves. Um, Chris, who's just joined us, just won a big award for his story on um, case workers, social workers. We've not quite figured out what this award is because it seemed to have dropped in out of the blue a month after the story ran, but it's great. But we work really hard on those stories. And even the pot stories we work hard on. T take us behind the scenes. What are your, your staff meetings like? What, what goes into your developing your story budgets and the news judgment decisions you make with you and your staff? They are not as fun as they used to be. We used to hold them in a bar, but then people needed to start leaving early and going for daycare and everything else. So now we have them in the morning, and we have them with coffee. But we will often have post-meeting meetings in the bar. Yeah. To talk about, you know, it's great if you're telling a long story, and if any of you have ever written, you know, 10,000 word stories, 5,000 word stories, you're telling a story. You better be able to tell it to your editor before you write it and make sure your reader be able to follow it through with you. Do you ever do postmortems on big projects? We will, although we've talked about it so often, by the time we're done, we're pretty exhausted. 
So, what have been some of the toughest big projects that Westward has tackled? Well, I would say even just this week, trying to get documents out of the city of Denver. Um, Chris had that issue. Uh, certainly, the one we could dine off for many, many years was the Rocky Flats grand jury story, where that was the it was 25 years ago now when. The Rocky Flats grand jury wanted to indict eight individuals, but instead the Justice Department dismissed the grand jury, sealed all the documents, made a deal with Rockwell International, which ran Rocky Flats, and, um, and we finally got the grand jurors to tell us their story, but we had to get them all off the record because they could still be held in contempt 20 years later. So that was one where we went for, we had to have a majority of the grand jurors tell, agree this was the correct story and tell that one. So that was probably the most legwork. Anonymous sources are often a contentious issue in big time reporting, especially investigative reporting. What's your, the, the Westward's policy on those? When we have to, we will. We don't like it. Um, in this case with the Rocky Flats grand jurors, you had no choice if you wanted to do the story because they would be held in contempt of court. So then we went for bulk. If you could get this number, over half of them agreeing this was the, actually what had happened, we would go with the story. So that was, we had to get 13 of them to agree. And again, an inside the newsroom um, question. If you have a reporter who has anonymous source and has told the reporter some really great stuff, do they then meet with you and you ask for that to identification of the source or how do you, what does that relationship do? How does it work? It depends completely on the story and whether I think we're going to want to go in, we're going to be subpoenaed for it and so it'll, it'll be on a case by case basis and usually a reporter will come to me and say we might have to do this anonymously, this source, but then you see who will back it up. So I think I can't remember, Chris. Did you have anonymous? Did you have some ident unidentified people in your caseworker story? Yes, two of the women, um, because they were admitting that they had mental health issues while they're handling cases, so they could be sued by families that they were working with. So, how long have you been working on that story? That story took me about two months, um, and I'm going to D.C. this weekend to. Uh, participating in the Capitol Hill briefing about supporting the casework, uh, child welfare workforce. A lot of news organizations would view that as a luxury, that amount of time to devote to Oh, a story. he did many, many other things at the same time. So when we're talking about our big stories, we'll be, generally we say we want a big story every month, every five weeks, but you might have a list that you're working out two years on, so working them along with time. Um, and then they're doing other stories all along the way. What, what, what have been the, the most controversial stories that generated the most reader or public uh, feedback? Uh, certainly when we wrote about Roy Romer's close personal relationship with his deputy chief of staff, that got a lot in. Um, Coach McCartney's daughter and who had the dying quarterback's baby, that one got a lot. Um, you know, every... I, the ones, those were the ones that got people the maddest. But otherwise, people just, people love now. Nothing gets people more angry than talking about natives and newcomers. I mean, the things that really get the discussion have nothing to do with how hard you worked on the story. I mean, that is one, natives and newcomers is like fighting. It's like Broncos, you can't. Right, oh, Broncos too, yes. We got in trouble on the Broncos because we had a newcomer write a bron Broncos piece. <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah, that was the double whammy. You never do that. We, we, we sort of address newspaper economics and how the landscape has changed. With Westward, what, 
what's been the pattern with your print circulation and also the traffic with your with your your online uh, viewership um, online up 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 all the time it's getting very large and we have cut back on our print circulation to about 80,000 now I think our highest ever was 110,000 copies and is that, was that a financial decision, the cost of the... Well, what we do, and this is part of if you want to be free, you better be sure you can monitor it. So we always would go on pickup, and our goal was to make sure there was never more than 4% pickup return rate. Sorry, it's a little arcane. And, uh, and less than that if possible. So we've been cutting back because we know that a lot of our readers now are just reading us online. And in fact, if they're reading us online, they're getting about 10 times as much content as they get if they just print, read the print. And you just published um, your most popular, uh, biggest issue of the year. Oh yeah, the best of Denver. How m you, and you said March is crazy for you because of that. How, how m what's the timeline and the planning and the execution of that, that one uh, issue? Oh, sorry, this is, it's, it's too fresh to really even mm -hmm. wanna talk about. So we start thinking all year about what we're gonna do. Like right now, I'll leave here and I'll write notes about these great best of things things that deserve an award, and I'll put them in a box and I'll forget to look to, at them until next February. And at the same time, everyone else who writes for us is supposed to be keeping these lists and going in the box. But of course, we don't really start doing it till next February. And we look through and then half the things we wanna write about have died. And we don't actually even know how many we're gonna have till we go to press, pretty much. We don't know the space we have until two days before the print deadline, so it's a wild wild thing but everything in there we love we have to fact check it because we've had restaurants die while we were on the press we've had people die die while we were on the press do it's you, just massive do you bump up your uh, press run for that no. one issue mm -hmm. just saying it's the same thing you want to reward your regular readers and but, of course now it's online where it lives yeah, does forever your, so does your online traffic go up with that issue yes it does go up but i mean it it takes two solid days to um to put that issue online wow yeah so even that's at, that's after two solid days of just producing and laying out the issue it's two more days to cut and paste it into print i mean onto the web which is why i don't like to talk about it right now and then people just complain nonstop about what they got or they don't like this adjective or they don't like can we change this headline or why didn't they get best hair for well, a sports why didn't, no one is really that excited to win best hair, although we just did a video with Chris Parente. He might have been the first person. He's pretty excited. Yeah, because generally what will happen is, you're talking about TV anchors, they don't want to be known for their best hair. They want to be the best TV anchor. Any other questions? Yes. Yes. Uh, first of all, thank you for your coverage on the city versus the homeless, as well as the city versus the city itself. Uh, and I know your resources are limited. Do you think there's any journalistic organization, news organization, with the, either the interest or the resources to follow the money uh, that's influencing the Hancock administration and city government? Well, you certainly see, I mean, the Post does it, we're doing it, you're doing it in bits and pieces, but what you have to do is focus down. So look at one very specific project, and I'm sure if we only had one project to follow in Denver. So in Denver right now, you're, you're looking at the National Western Center, and over a billion bucks is gonna go into that. Where is that money coming from? Who's gonna be involved in that? You're, and coming out of that, the Brighton Boulevard project, the North Corridor. Then you look at the Denver um, Center for the Performing Arts, 
that whole complex and what's going to happen to Emily Griffith and the Colorado Convention Center. And they're talking about having some public-private partnerships and selling the air rights to developers who want to put taller buildings up. So there's a lot of money to follow. That's the biggest challenge. Every zoning, which you wrote about. Oh, yeah. And you know, that is a, that's a good example of you know it's so important to do, but if all you paid attention to were the comments that came back, except maybe from the city, you get comments from them, uh, but the comments that came back, you would never do the news stories because investigative reporting is so hard and it's gratifying when it works out, but you will still get more comments every day about the Broncos. If you write about a dead baby, you will get one-tenth of the comments you'll get about a kitten stuck up a tree. I mean, we all know that, so you just have to do the stories because they're important. Although I will say this, we got a lot on the wastewater story. If you followed the whole City Park golf course, Cole neighborhood, is it linked to I-70? We're in the middle of a lot of controversy over that, including, as I was telling Ed, a um, request for a correction for on one of our online stories. Because we used two co colorful adjectives in describing the mayor's development policy. <laughs> you talk about the changing media landscape and, and sort of your change in audience. Do you think the effectiveness of your investigative reporting to affect change in the Hancock administration or otherwise has changed from when you started versus now? Well, we're much better at investigative reporting than we were when we started. And it is true, when we started, we were. We didn't do as much. We weren't as, um, even with limited resources, we, weren't, we didn't have nearly as many resources as we did now. So you can tell where you've made changes in some ways, but often it is, can you get other people to follow the story? If that happened with Chris's homeless story, for example, we know it's making some changes, but very rarely do you see a dramatic response quickly. You usually follow it over time. In the case of Roy Romer, it took us 10 years till he was caught smooching um, B.J. Thornberry. There was something like the homeless issue in the wastewater from the, the Northeast Denver um, construction projects. Doesn't that help shape public discussion about those issues and force local government to maybe step back, reconsider, or take a different course of action? Well, I would hope so. I would hope in response to the story that Chris wrote this last week, they would be more forthcoming in communicating with the neighborhood communicating with the homeless providers who've complained that even though the sweeps were planned back in mid-January, and maybe even earlier, they knew nothing about it until a few days before. And had they known a few days before, they could have figured out places where the homeless could stash their belongings, which, by the way, are just a block away. You might have noticed, 1221 Glenarm, that's where all the homeless possessions that were taken in the sweeps are stashed. And so far, one, maybe two have been able to get them because of, it's open two hours a day, which happens to be the time when the homeless can eat lunch at the shelters. So uh, we, we hope we've made some changes and things like that. With what you, you know, your weekly routine of, of being the editor of, of Westward, how do you find time to write your columns? That is a good question. I, uh, usually when you, I find time when I know we actually have space in the issue, which I don't find out right away. And it's fueled by the fact that if I don't tell this story, no one else will. So you just find the time. But are there certain topics that you said, this is mine, I want to write a column about this? 
or this person or this issue? Sometimes. I mean, I had one I wanted to write this week, and then I looked and I saw Michael Roberts had written about it, even though I told him I was writing about it. So uh, that'll save me some time this week. Um, so where's Michael working next week? <laughs> you know, I don't care. As long as the stories get told, I do not care who tells them. Uh, so I've got about... I have about 50 stories I hope I'm going to be able to work on sometime soon. Some of them are little, like, uh, Denver has a sh such a short memory now because editors are leaving, copy editors are gone. The Emily Griffith School, for example, so in 2012, Denver Public Schools wanted to have that named non-historic so they could just knock it down and sell it. And it was only because Historic Denver put up a fight at the end of 2012 that they agreed we wouldn't knock it down, we would look into opportunities. And it took until this past March till they actually came up with a plan. So that's over three years. And in the meantime, everyone had forgotten what was going on with that building. So and that's just you know, down the street. Right, right yeah. down the street. And so they came up with a compromise that is actually pretty good, I think. But that's only because Historic Denver really fought and people kept the city's feet to the fire. But I would call every month and say, what's happening? And they're like, oh, nothing, nothing, which wasn't the case. But well, well, reading your columns, I would not have that impression. I, you know, it comes across that you, you care a lot about who the, the person or issue you're writing about, and you put a lot of thought and time into crafting the columns. So it doesn't seem like you just, oh, you found out you've got 20, oh, no, 30 always, inches of space. That's when I pull up the most, the column that I think I can get done. I mean, I'm always working string along on those okay. stories, always working on calling people, trying to find out what happens. And then sometimes you'll find out, like in the case of Emily Griffith, that even though you'd called them the week before, no one had uh, actually told you what was happening. And you have to move things up fast. <laughs> Which is common all the time. Right, well, it happens to everyone. It's just at the same time they're not editing yeah. 10 other stories. The, uh, an old time definition of a good newspaper was it holds up a mirror to its community. You can say that about any news organization, whether it's online, um, TV, commercial, public, public radio. Do you think that uh, Westward and The Post and every other, other news organization in Denver do that with the city of Denver? Well, I think we're all holding up a mirror to a different city. I mean, we all see different things. We have such an emphasis on music and arts, too, and it's incredible some of the things that are going on in this city. We have a co cover story this week on a really interesting international band that's based here. Um, and releasing an album called Denver next week, and is then going to touring the world, and they want to be Colorado ambassadors. I'm not sure the Colorado Tourism Authority wants them to be ambassadors, but it's going to happen. So th there are the in the arts, it is unbelievable what incredible projects are going on, and you just don't see many of them. I mean, what we've got one arts writer at the Post, Ray Ro Ray Mark Rinaldi, who is working very hard, but you cannot do everything. So there are a lot of it, there are a lot of things going uncovered. But the, so you're holding up a mirror to a slice of Denver. Ho hopefully you look at enough mirrors, enough publications, and you'll get the full view. Yes? There have been a lot of stories lately about all the millennials moving to Denver. Um, do you think that's, that change, that demographics of your audience is going to change what you do or, or open up more? possibilities for what you're, what you're doing? You know, millennials, well, pre-millennials, young, that market, that age group has always moved to Denver. I mean, that's what I did when I moved to Denver, you know, and, um, and if you look, except for the really depressing 80s, we've always had a pretty good inflow of people, and the big boom in Denver came before pot. I mean, if you looked at the Brookings Institute and the census, they were writing from, what, what was it, 2000, 
2008 to 2011, we had, we had the biggest influx of millennials of any place in the country. So that was before pot was legalized. So it, the challenge actually becomes, you think, we've told a version of that story, but is it time to tell it again? Because people don't know. So the classic of that is um, Dr. Stanley Biber, who was the groundbreaking tr uh, transgender surgeon mm -hmm. in Trinidad. You know, for a long time, Trinidad was the sex change capital of the world. We told that story every five years, whether we needed to or not, because new people had always come along. It was getting, it was, it was still interesting. Dr. Biber's hands were getting shakier, shakier and shakier, which is bad if you're doing transgender assignment surgery. Um, and it, so it was an interesting story. And then finally, we went and did the story about the fact that. He died, he'd sold his business, uh, the person who bought it left, and that's the end of the transgender industry in Trinidad. And no one had really followed up on that, so we did that. Now Trinidad's about pot, which is another good story. <laughs> yes? Uh, for a long time you had no movie ads on the paper. Uh, how did you decide to put the movie ads on? Do you remember what triggered that? Yeah, they probably bought them. Movie ads? Or a movie listings? Well, a long time there were no movie ads in Westward, and then all of a sudden there was, and I just wondered what brought about the change. It's been a while, so. Yeah, um, we've had, in the beginning, they just wouldn't buy a free weekly, movie companies. They just wouldn't do it. That's changed a lot over the years. So now, we used to do free movie screenings, but then um, there was such a run on the free tickets that people quit. Uh, wanting to wait in line for four hours to see, get a free Batman ticket or something. We clogged up all of Broadway, so we quit doing that. But it's just that people, it, businesses have changed. And part of it is the buyers who might have grown up with alternative papers, no longer, they're, they're the power, the decision makers now. So they're not worried that it's a free paper, that it might have pot ads. You know, they grew up with them. And I got here late, you may have already talked, but did you talk about bringing out, you know, your first paper of Westward, the first issue of the first edition? A little bit. I didn't really talk about how incredibly stupid we were, but I can tell that story very quickly. <laughs> so um, we decided to make the impact. We'd done this newspaper on Long Beach Island, New Jersey for a summer, so we'd made a lot of our big mistakes there. We'd printed it at our... Uh, the paper in Ithaca, the press in Ithaca, New York, where I went to Cornell, where we had credit, so we had no money. So we kind of just balanced funds. And we actually left um, that summer in the black and gave the paper to our third partner and came here. So we thought to make the kind of impact we wanted, we would have 40 pages and we would print 50,000 copies. It didn't even occur to us, for example, that we had to distribute the 50,000 copies. We just thought it sounded good. We mostly wound up distributing them in our garage because we couldn't figure out where to put them. Uh, and for a long time, the competition for, that we faced wasn't really advertising. It was where to put those free papers. Because we were pretty much the first free newspaper in Denver, and then a lot more came along. So if you're at uh, Racine's now, where you see all those boxes, or in all the shelves, those didn't exist at restaurants and bars in the 70s. So they started building those because once we made them put a rack in, then other people wanted them too. And so you all of a sudden have all the free literature and that, that came up in the 80s. That was never, those, those great places to grab your stuff to read while you wait for your friends, that didn't exist. 
To, to go back to the, the, the national presidential campaign for a moment, one of the themes started by the Republicans and the Democrats have picked it up is the disparity uh, between you know, the one percenters and everybody else in America and this uh, disparity in income, living standards, uh, education, health, everything else, social mobility. Do you think that story is being reported well in Denver? Well, I think it's too simplistic in Denver to make it the 1% and the 99%. I mean, in Denver, it's much more, say, the 30% and the 30% and the 30%. I mean, the people who in no way can, still, can afford to live in Denver anymore because of how, how expensive housing is getting. The people who are scraping by by um, living with friends or working things out. I mean, that's the story here in a lot of ways. And but then, is it being reported? I think there's a lot of it being reported, um, but there's, it's not as cliched as the one in the 99%, although certainly there are some of those that come up. It's not being reported enough. I mean, the, uh, what's going to happen to all the new buildings that are being built for apartment complexes and not built particularly well, what's going to happen to those 10 years from now when no one wants to pay? You know, they've gone on to the next hip city and no one wants to pay $3,000 for a two-bedroom apartment. What I seem to see too often lately are stories based on um, data research um, studies. And it's the most recent one was about poverty in Colorado. And there was a nice map graphic showing, color map showing uh, the counties that had the highest levels of childhood poverty and the, the, the more well-to-do counties. But it was very superficial. It was just the numbers. Uh, there was no... Um, Let's go to San Luis Valley or, or Southeast Colorado or maybe neighborhoods in Denver where the numbers are high and go door to door and talk to people to flesh out and humanize the story. It, it, and, and maybe that's just a, a complaint of mine, but it seems like because of newsroom staffing, those kinds of stories aren't done as often as they used to. They don't, they don't leave their desk. I mean, if you're going to, and especially with the length story we are telling, you have to get out there and find the person you're going to tell that story through. So, for example, last year when we wanted to start getting into what was going on in Globeville and Swansea and Elyria, we found a woman who we think had lived there longer than anyone else and told her story. And it was really interesting because it was very different than some of the things we might have expected. But you need to find the people to tell the stories through. Um, I'm, one of our earliest stories was on Center, Colorado, and the San Luis Valley. But if you're just doing data, you're going to lose people in the first three paragraphs. You can, you can put in facts, and you can put in those boring data facts into a story and pull readers along. And by the time they're done, they'll have gotten every fact they need. But in the same time, you'll have humanized the story yeah. for them. And I think if you do do that, go to the extra effort, just carve out the time and staff resources, those stories have a bigger impact and do have an influence on the public and shape public policy and dialogue, too. Readers care because you've made it right. easier for yeah. them to follow someone. Even, I mean, if you think about the homeless issue, which is so huge here now, and there are plenty of stats on that, and there's money and the money that's gone into it, and the number of the people on the streets and the counts that you do, but unless you really talk to people, it's very hard to have that come to life. So Chris's story that he just did, for example, followed two of the people who had been in the sweeps. Um, and I don't think they, we, he didn't make them particularly sympathetic. They were interesting characters. And they talked about their lives, and they were very well spoken. I don't think we made it into a sob story. It was just it helped to follow these people with what they'd been through. Did you have trouble finding two people who would talk 
I mean, sometimes they don't want to talk to yeah. anyone, especially a reporter. Yeah, no, I, I did not find it difficult to find people. Um, I mean, especially because the encampments along Park Avenue became so concentrated, it's really easy to find people. And so you may go to four or five individuals who are not comfortable speaking to you, but there's 10 just a block away from them. So uh, you, just by sheer numbers, you're gonna find someone who's willing to really share their story. Do they give their full names, their full life history? Um, not all the time, but the two individuals that I spoke to gave their, uh, their full names. And um, I mean, I got more of their back history than I was, had space to put in the article. But. And we photographed them. I think it's, um, it's important to get as close to being really personal with these people as possible. If you don't have the photographs, if you say, let's call him Joe Blow, I mean, it really helps to have them be the real people. It helps the readers. And I mean, talk about the visual images that go along with the copy. That's an example of where you only have so much news hole to put the photos and your, your story or sidebars, but you can put a lot more of the photos, especially online. Yeah, that's the and great that thing. Endless up. amounts of space online. Chris did a follow this week when we finally got the CORA request from a uh, CORA response from the city, and we put up the exact CORA, you know, we put up screenshots. Thank you. Okay, he put up the screenshots. Um, but it really helps to be able to see that. And see what you see, what's blacked out. See what the city sent back. I think those stories are important because too often, a lot of residents only see it through their car window as they're driving by. Look down at Cherry Creek and see some people down there along the sidewalks, and then they just you know look for the next traffic light. Right, or they hear the cliche. They hear that they're only here for the pot, or they're drug addicts, or they're drunks, or they're whatever. And if you really get out and talk to the people, you find out they're very, they're drug addicts, which is why they don't want to get into the shelters. If you talk to them, you find out that it's much, much more layered than that. There are many, many, there's no simple answer, and no simple stereotype that fits. Before we run out of time, does anyone else have a question? I was going to ask if you would talk about finding the source who was living in Globeville. I think looking for sources like that is a different story than you know something that you see on the street and you can go to a whole <coughs> But when you're looking for someone to explain something that isn't right in front of you, how do you approach that? Um, sometimes it's a matter of knocking on doors. I'm trying to think in that, but also it's, I have a running list, not just of stories I want to write, but stories I think we should write. So I'm always out listening and thinking, or talking to different people and thinking, can I find someone? And in some case, I just happened to hear of this woman, and it might have been in another story, Buried, but it just said how long she'd lived there. I'm like, that is, that she has got to be the longest living person. And it was just one sentence in a very long story somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we found her. But we are always keeping track of those, or suddenly we'll hear there's a story coming up, and we're like, oh, I know something that ties to. So you have to, you have to be thinking all the time, keeping those notes, and then pulling them up when you remember there's something applicable. Or knocking on doors. Yeah, And doing those kinds of stories in those neighborhoods, as you said, refreshes everybody's memory about their community, about the city. Because right. a lot and, of newer people don't even know where that is. Right, and of course, and even then, with Globeville and Swansea and Illyria, you have um, the cliches that people think, and it might not be true. I mean, in case, the interesting thing about this woman and her mother and her siblings is, 
she didn't want to stay there. You know, so when you have people, I don't want I-70 growing, I don't, you know, she goes, oh, you know, we'd be happy to move, or we don't care if the highway's here. So it's counterintuitive to some of the storylines you found. Then again, Kevin, who's been knocking on doors up there, there are also people very concerned about the expansion of I-70 and what can happen. So your reporter has to go in and be prepared to be surprised by what they find. I mean, I'm never happier than when a reporter says, the story is not what I thought it would be, but it's even better because you don't ever want to make the facts kind of fit a preconceived notion you have. I mean, that's just never going to be good. What's your ideal balance between your reporters going out, be reporting, knocking on doors, versus also answering emails and the calls you guys get to the paper and sitting at their desks and writing? <laughs> uh, I don't care if I never see them. Um, I think. Uh, you can tell me if I'm wrong. As long as I know where I can find a reporter if something's happening. And I mean, you can tell if a reporter's working because you see the stories they turn in. Um, I know. And we'd, we're not, in general, saying someone's got to go cover this school board meeting that just got announced today. We're just not going to do that. We can't be the newspaper of record on everything. So there will be times, like I very happily had a crazy maybe a crazy homeless person called me yesterday to give me a tip, and Chris happened to be in the office so I could foist it off on him. But in general, if the writers are out working, that's fine with me. When we visit college campuses and talk with journalism students, we, we always encourage them to read and write as much as they can, and uh, to go beyond their comfort level and look at other news sources and cite Frontline and NPR and other programs like that. What are the, the, the news sources you read on a regular basis? Well, it's different than, uh, I mean, I would say every one of our staff writers, I'm sure, reads The New Yorker just because for long form, there's so few publications that are really doing a great job anymore. And um, The New Yorker still does a really wonderful job. And do not miss the great story they did about the motel in Aurora this week. Gay Talese wrote it about the guy who'd been Cut, cut holes in the motel ceiling so he could peep on his guests. It's a really good, it's a really good creepy one that happens to be local. So other than that, you know, I'll read the New York Times in the morning. I'll read the Wall Street Journal in the morning. I'll watch 15 minutes of Fox News if it kills me. I'll watch 15 minutes of MSNBC to counter that, some CNN. You know, so just mix and match, but as much as you possibly can. But you have to read really great lyrical writing and it doesn't necessarily have to be nonfiction, but you want to do that to put your head in the, sh the kind of shape where you can write your stories, too. Anyone have a final question? I just have a comment. I would like to thank you for what Westward does to support good, in-depth journalism and investigative reporting, because we don't have enough of it anymore. As you said, the staff are shrinking in all the news organizations in, the, in Colorado. So I hope you keep doing what you're doing. Oh, well, thank you. We thank everyone who puts up with us and those potheads <laughs> that keep coming in. Well, thank you very much. Thanks. Enjoyed it.